0: I'm Anton Hellman. I'm Justin Morgenstern. And this is the Journal, Journal Jam, podcast. Jam Podcast. EM Cases is part of SHREMI, the Schwartz-Reisman Emergency Medicine Institute. That's the nonprofit organization dedicated to improving EM care through high-quality research and education. The opinions expressed on this podcast are intended for general information and educational purposes only and should not be used to diagnose, treat, or prevent any medical condition, nor should they be used as a substitute for medical advice from a qualified practicing physician. Unless stated otherwise, the opinions expressed by the hosts or guests are made in their individual capacity, not on behalf of the Institute nor medicine cases. Okay, here's the question. So have you ever seen a patient in the ED with a laceration? It's incredible, actually, that we treat probably millions of people with lacerations in the ed every year and seem to hardly ever talk about the evidence for what we do or do not do to them there are literally dozens of questions that i'm not sure we have great answers for here are just a few do you suture lacerations that are a day or two old or let them heal by secondary intention do you irrigate the laceration before closing it if you do what do you use to irrigate with is tap water good enough how sterile do you need to be when repairing lacerations? Do you need sterile gloves? Do you need to sterilize the field? What about the suturing itself? Is averting the edges of the laceration necessary? When do you use staples or sutures or wound closure strips, commonly known as steri strips, or surgical glue? Then there's what you counsel the patient to do with the wound after they leave the ED. What aftercare instructions are evidence based? can you get the wound wet? Does allowing the wound to get wet depend on what closure technique you use? Do wetness restrictions depend on whether you use glue or sutures or staples? What's the best kind of dressing, if any dressing at all? Do topical antibiotics reduce the rate of infection, or is it just the petroleum jelly in them that keeps the wound moist and helps it to heal? Do any patients need prophylactic antibiotics for their laceration? What if it was a dog who bit them, or a cat, or a squirrel, or some other animal? Is there anything that minimizes the scar from a laceration? Vitamin E oil, aloe vera, UV protection, petroleum jelly. Does any of this really matter?
1: Anton, to me, this matters a lot. It matters because we take time, resources, cost. It affects outcomes. It affects our patients' expectations. There's a lot of ways that all this stuff matters. Of course, we all like to talk about the exciting stuff in emergency medicine. This isn't acute, life-saving stuff, but this is one of the most common things that we will see, and we really should know why we are doing what we're doing.
0: Okay, fair enough. So now that we've kind of laid out the questions and why they're important to ask, Let's lay out the plan for the remainder of the Journal Jam podcast. So for every single topic that I outlined in the barrage of questions I asked at the top of the podcast, we have done a deep dive into the literature, or more, more specifically, Justin has done a deep dive into the literature, an incredible amount of work. So we're going to try and bring the best available science to the management of lacerations. Now, unfortunately, as you'll hear soon, for many topics, the quote, best available science is no science at all. And we'll be left to using just clinical judgment and gestalt. But by the end of the conversation, you'll know just about everything there is to know about laceration repair. You'll probably discover some things that you've been taught are dogma, and some of your practices will probably be reinforced. Uh, Maybe other practices will be changed. There is an
1: absolutely massive amount of detail here, just so many topics uh, to cover. I think this is the longest script we've ever written. I don't think we're going to go into as much deep dive detail as we often do in these journal jam episodes, uh, but there's going to be a full write up for every single topic. So if you want to explore these a little bit more, check the show notes on EM cases or come over to first 10 EM and there'll be a full write up for everything.
0: Uh, let's dive in, Anton. All right. But wait, Justin, we uh, we haven't introduced our illustrious guest journal jammer yet, uh, Dr. Haley Cochran. For those of you who don't know Dr. Cochran, I'm still incredibly grateful for her masterminding the series of live podcasts in Calgary, the best of Calgary EM that we did recently, and for being an incredible host and showing me around the very impressive ED at Foothills there. As per Twitter, she is distinctly worldly, I would say. She did medical school in Sydney, Australia, her EM residency at Harvard, and is now an EM doc in Calgary, Alberta, at the foot of the Rocky Mountains. And so excellently, she's, quote, surfer, adventurer, educator, and purveyor of quality high fives, which I can attest to because there were many high fives when I visited Calgary. So welcome to EM Cases, Dr. Cochran.
2: Hi, Anton and Justin. Thanks so much for having me. I'm really excited to talk about this topic. It's close to my heart, uh, mostly because of all the lacerations I sustained as a small child. So this is a great topic to to cover with you both. <laughs>
1: I right. agree entirely. Why didn't we have glue when I was a kid? Why did we not have glue anyway? <laughs> we,
2: we did. You're aging
1: <laughs> yourself a
0: little bit there. <laughs>
2: <Yeah>. <laughs> we had uh, we had white white glue that didn't work very well
0: let's start with a little case so a patient shows up 20 hours after cutting their forearm or perhaps these days it was that they waited for 19 hours to be seen classic teaching in emergency medicine has been that after a certain period of time we should not close the wound the thinking being that the risk of infection is too high and the exact time frame for how long after it's advisable to still close a laceration seems to vary a lot you know is it 6 hours is it 12 hours is it 24 hours But the question is, if a patient presents a long time after the laceration occurred, what exactly should we do? Should we close it or should we leave it open to heal by secondary intention? Does that decision depend on where on the body the laceration is, if it's the face or the leg or what have you? What about the size of the wound? Big wounds might be more likely to be infected and have bad cosmetic outcomes. And what if they're diabetic or living with AIDS or on immune modulators? Should their immune status steer us toward closing or not closing the lack? These are all questions that you might be asking. So let's just start with the first question, how the rate of infection changes with time.
1: Yeah, and I think what you've started us off on there is Antonia, just how complex many of these questions are going to be and what will- our listeners are unfortunately going to find is we don't even have the science to answer the very basic question. Does time matter, let alone all those overlying factors here? So the very first question is how does the rate of infection change with time? And honestly, I think that's the wrong question. And we're going to come back to that in a minute, but at least it's a question that has been looked at in a few different studies. So there's a 2013 systematic review that looks at infection rates of early versus late presenters with lacerations. And at that point in 2013, there were really only four single center observational trials, each use slightly different definitions of early versus late, but it was either six or 12 hours. Now, three of those studies were statistically negative. There was no difference in infections between early and late. However, the fourth study, there was a dramatic difference. 32% of wounds presenting after 12 hours became infected as compared to only 6% in those presenting early. I think there's some really big caveats here, uh, but perhaps the biggest is that there were only 19 total patients in that late presentation group. So this data is incredibly weak. And when I read the systematic review, it just doesn't give me a lot to, to work with. I don't really know how to interpret these results. Now, luckily, there are a couple other papers that we can run through
2: in 2014 is a much larger multi-center observational trial that included almost 4,000 patients. Unfortunately, they only have follow-up on about 2,600 of them, so the data set is at a very high risk of bias when you're losing almost half your people. The infection rate in this cohort was about 2.6%. There was no difference in the rate of infection among people presenting before six hours, 3%, uh, compared to those presenting after six hours, which was 3.7%. Only 85 patients presented after 12 hours and only one of them developed an infection. They did find a number of risk factors for infection, which we we see commonly diabetes, gross contamination and larger lacerations and those in the lower extremities. But, Late presentations data set was not a risk factor. Aside from a huge loss of follow-up, we need to be careful to remember that this is observational data. It is possible that everyone presenting after six hours was given antibiotics or otherwise treated differently. In fact, we know this is the case. Only 13 of the 85 patients who presented after 12 hours were closed with sutures. The rest were left to heal by secondary intention. So in other words, there are many confounders that could influence this data.
1: The last paper I want to go through is Hollander 2001. It's another big observational study. They had 5,500 patients. And again, the overall infection rate is about 2.5%. And again, there was no difference in infection risk with time. So the average time to present presentation in people who got infections was 3.3 hours, and it was 2.6 hours in those who did not get infections. So if we try to summarize all this data, I think the best we can say is that It's mixed. There's not great evidence that the time from injury increases your infection rate. In fact, I think most of the data says that it probably doesn't increase your infection rate, but this data is far from perfect. But here's the thing, I just don't care. This is the completely wrong question. It doesn't matter whether delayed wounds have a higher infection rate than early wounds. It's not like we're asking patients to wait before we repair their lacerations. This question only arises when a patient, for whatever reason, arrives late. At that point, it doesn't matter if their infection rate is higher than it would have been if they had presented six hours ago. We don't have time machines. So the question that we need to ask is, given that the patient has now presented late, how does that affect our management? Does suturing increase the rate of infection in that population? And as far as I can tell, and I spent a lot of time looking, this question has never been studied. Nobody has ever taken a patient presenting to the emergency department after six hours and randomized them to sutures or nothing. Nobody's even looked at it in an observational study, as far as I can tell. Uh, There is some surgical literature. I'm not so sure that extrapolation from the surgical literature is a good idea, but it's really all that we have. And really, as far as I can tell, there's no good evidence for avoiding primary closure. There are actually a large number of RCTs, and this might be a really good topic for a future journal, Jim. There are a fair number of RCTs looking at closing wounds after an IND for abscess. And if you suture the wound closed after an IND for abscess, you get better outcomes with no increase in infection rate. And there are a number of uh, RCTs in surgery when you have contaminated wounds, and the, the research is somewhat mixed. But again, you don't seem to have an increase in infection rate if you just suture it closed right away. So in my mind, you know, especially if we're supposed to be suturing abscesses closed, I think it's pretty clear that even though this patient may have a slightly higher risk of infection if they're presenting at 19 or 20 hours, we probably should just be suturing them closed.
0: So, Justin, what you're trying to say is it's okay to leave patients waiting in the emergency department 19 hours to get their laceration taken care of. So I'm not sure I'm saying that, but the administrators
1: (laughs) seem to be saying that these days.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Oh, I agree with you, Justin. In the era now, our patients are going to wait in the emergency department, sometimes six or 12 hours before we even look at that cut. And that's even outside of the time it took from the moment they cut themselves to presenting. And, you know, I know for myself, if I cut my hand making dinner, I am not going to wait 12 hours to be seen. I'll probably go in the next day. And then that's looking at 12 or 16 hours later. So I think that we actually have our future study and delayed closure laceration. Um, that cohort is in your emergency department right now. They're just sitting there. They're waiting for you to, to observe them and see what happens because we're kind of forcing that on them with, with our uh, current wait times. What I think is important to consider clinically is the cosmesis and patient preference. So we know that wounds that heal by secondary tension are larger and they're more noticeable. And we need to tell our patients up front that these delayed open wounds will scar more if we leave them open. We do know and some people won't mind, you know, a bigger, more obvious to scar depending on the length of the wound and the location of it. But you know it may be worth this unclear late closure infection risk to give the patient a better cosmetic outcome especially in lax on exposed surfaces so i'm talking about you know the face upper area of the chest sometimes the arms just depending on the on the age and the preference of the patient so in my in my mind i'm going to close that clean delay presentation wound in a healthy patient who has good follow up and resources and support to care for that wound because i think it's i think it's going to be beneficial to them
1: I think we're going to say this over and over again in this episode, the most important part of evidence-based medicine is taking this literature and combining it with your clinical judgment and the patient preferences. We got to talk to our patients. So I think just if we tried to summarize this entire topic, it's just absolute uncertainty. Uh, Honestly, I don't think it makes any physiologic sense that you would just want to leave a wound open just because they presented late. So and, and I think the best evidence suggests that there probably isn't that big of a increase in infection, even if patients are presenting in a delayed fa- fashion. And even if they are, they probably will have better cosmetic outcomes if we suture them close. So at, at this point, the time from injury doesn't actually affect how I personally manage these injuries at all. The thing that changes is how I counsel my patients. Uh, basically, I, I tell them they might have a higher risk of infection and I let them decide. But almost always people want their wounds uh, closed if it's an option.
0: Yeah. I find the same. So I guess whenever possible, close the lack sooner rather than later because they'll likely heal faster that way. Uh, You might have a better cosmetic outcome. With regards to the infection risk, we don't really know. And I think you hit the nail right on the head there, Justin. The most important thing when it comes to delayed presentations for lacerations is counseling the patient who presents late uh, and taking into account the cosmesis and the patient preference. You know, Taking into account that their lack will take longer to heal, With these patients, you'll probably just give them the usual instructions to return if there's signs of infection that you're going to apply regardless of when the lack is closed. And talking about things we can do to minimize infection rates, let's move on to irrigation of the wound. Now, it seems intuitive that irrigation would help. You know, traumatic wounds are dirty. We should clean them to make them less dirty, right? But... The Journal gem series is about never making assumptions. We want to know the science behind our clinical practice. So let's start with the most basic question. Do we even need to irrigate? It seems that surgeons are really big on always irrigating wounds. What's the evidence for laceration, irrigation, and preventing infection and healing? And actually, this is one of my
1: biases. I almost didn't even do this lit search because I just assumed irrigation was good. And then the second assumption I made was that everybody else would assume it was so good that nobody would ever study it. So I just assumed there was going to be no evidence in this area. I mean, I know that there are doctors out there who would definitely claim it is complete malpractice not to irrigate a a wound. So how could you ever study something that we know is so harmful? But actually, there are at least four emergency medicine studies that have asked the question whether irrigation is even necessary.
2: Well, the biggest overall trial is an observational trial. So, this is Hollander in 1998, and they looked prospectively at almost 2,000 face and scalp lacerations. So, ones that actually are going to heal really well on their own. And they excluded any patients with immunocompromised, the ones we're always wondering about. And they also excluded any patients who presented more than six hours after their injury, assuming the infection rate would be too high, which we now know may be a bit of a bad assumption being observational, there are obviously going to be some limitations. But it's really interesting that almost half this group was treated without irrigation. So despite our teaching about how important irrigation is, in real life practice, doctors seem to skip this stuff a lot. The rate of infection was the same in both groups, 0.9% with irrigation, 1.4% without. And two things about this data was this is face and scalp lacerations. You know, they almost never get infected and trying to irrigate these, you're basically waterboarding your patient. So that may explain why doctors choose not to irrigate these so often. And I find for the most part, sometimes the facial ones in particular are pretty small. It's rare to see sort of a huge 10 to 20 centimeter laceration across the face. So again, observational data, there may be a reason that doctors choose not to irrigate. Um, And, you know, if they're dirty appearing, they probably will. But maybe if they're smaller, it's just not worth the the effort.
1: Yeah, I agree. Observational data is clearly going to have significant limitations. We treat these uh, different. You choose to irrigate for a reason. Uh, But I I like looking at this kind of data because it's really nice to know what other emergency doctors are doing, right? Even if this data is more than 20 years old, we all talk a big game about irrigation. Every chart says, oh, this was extensively irrigated. But let's be honest. When I have a kid who's got an eyebrow ir- laceration, the last thing I'm doing is dumping a ton of water onto that kid's face, right? So I definitely skip irrigation relatively routinely in, in the clean appearing wounds when they're on people's heads and, and, and their faces. And I, it's like nice to know that I'm not alone in this. Interestingly, there are actually a couple RCTs on this topic. Not great RCTs, but RCTs. So there's a 2012 uh, Cochrane review that found three RCTs, a total of 800 patients. And in these RCTs that are comparing irrigation to no irrigation in traumatic laceration, there was absolutely no difference between the groups. Now, huge caveat here, in two of the trials, there were actually no infections at all in either group. So it's hard to show a difference if there's no infections either way. And in the third trial, there was exactly one infection in both groups. So obviously, these trials only included patients at very low risk of infection. So we can't just apply this to every single emergency department patients. And with only two events in total, the confidence intervals here are absolutely huge. There's a lot of uncertainty, but I find it really interesting to know that there are three RCTs. And the only RCT data we have shows that irrigation doesn't help, or at least the trials are negative. Um, and so that suggests to me that any benefit, and there still may be a benefit, but any benefit is likely to be relatively modest.
2: I'm always so interested in the difference in infection rates in these papers compared to what I tell patients and sort of where where they're really ranging. here. I find that really fascinating. But I think that a debate that's going to come up a lot today with the literature we're talking about and and moving forward with all our different content today is, should we extrapolate from surgical literature? Sterile wounds made in the OR are obviously very, very different than the lacerations we see. You know, no one's out there cutting themselves or taking out their own appendix, hopefully. But, you know, there's more surgical literature than emergency medicine literature. They've been suturing skin clothes for, you know, decades more than we have. So it's worth considering as long as we acknowledge that it may not translate perfectly to our world. There's a systematic review from 2020 that looks at irrigation after abdominal surgery, which is known to have a higher rate of wound infection than most surgeries just because they're spreading feces entirely into their abdomen and likely on top of the skin there. So this is Ambien 2020. They found four RCTs, including about 1,200 patients. There was no statistical difference between the groups. So the technical conclusion is that there's no evidence that irrigation reduces wound infections. However, the confidence intervals were large. And the point estimate is for a 30% reduction in infections, which would probably be a clinically important finding. So although there's no evidence that irrigation helps, there's a lot of uncertainty in this data, and we definitely can't claim definitively that it doesn't help. So I did a little bit of online shopping last night, and those one liter bottles of saline or a bag of saline will cost your department about $10 a pop. And grade A you know, local tap water is costing you a lot less for a lot more volume i to mention the time it takes to set up and position a patient to irrigate a wound. And especially if it's in a difficult to kind of clean location, you can't take their whole body and dump them in a bath. But I, the main benefit I like about irrigation is it gives me a clear view of the wound. I'm able to kind of clear everything out and I take a really good look. So I can make plans for appropriate closure and assess for any involvement of important structures.
1: Yeah, I find this data really interesting. It's good to know that irrigation may not be strictly necessary. And I agree, given it costs essentially nothing to run a hand underwater, I will keep irrigating most wounds until we see uh, better data. But I like that this gives me a lot of leeway to consider the harms of irrigation, the added time in the ED, the inefficiency, uh, the fact that irrigation can really scare kids, the the cost to the department. And so I, I think there's room for judgment here. There are clearly wounds where you're gonna irrigate, but I think there's times when you're gonna gonna skip irrigation a- as well. And it's, it's nice to know that's an
0: option. I think patients expect you to irrigate the wound, and I think practically speaking, usually it's uh, dumping some gauze in some kind of liquid and putting it on the wound. Kind of satisfies them and me. You know, my take on whether or not to irrigate a laceration on this journal gem is that the evidence for any benefit is not clear. If anything, there might actually be some harm, but that for obviously dirty wounds, irrigation just makes sense. So I'll irrigate anything that's obviously dirty by history or physical, but I don't think it should be considered a standard of care and I wouldn't fault anyone for skipping irrigating a clean looking wound when there's you know time pressures in the ED, etc. So in other words, irrigation should certainly not be a priority. Okay, so that's a little bit about whether we should irrigate or not. Assuming that most of us will continue to irrigate most lacerations until evidence suggests that we should not, let's get into which irrigation fluid is best and also how much irrigation fluid is required and does the amount of pressure that you irrigate at matter. Of course, we need to keep in mind that we aren't sure about any evidence of benefit for irrigation in the first place. So whatever we say about which fluid, volume, and pressure really needs to be taken with a grain of salt. Yeah, absolutely. So let's just jump in with
1: pressure and volume. And I think I can try to summarize all of this in less than a minute if I talk quickly. For volume, every textbook seems to make a very specific claim And as far as I can tell, there's never been a single study that has looked at different volumes to see how how good they are. So as far as I know, for volumes, there is absolutely no data at all, no answer. For pressure, the data, assuming that we aren't focused on animal studies looking at surrogate outcomes like bacterial counts, is also extremely limited. I think there are just Two studies that we want to know about. The first is an RCT of 300 uh, emergency department patients from 1987 that compared low pressure irrigation to in to a syringe based system that was targeting 13 psi, and the infection rate was actually a lot lower in the 13 psi group, seven versus one percent. So pressure might matter. But that trial was a single-center trial, it was unblinded, it was only published as a letter to the editor, and the randomization was done either by flipping a coin or spinning a scalpel on a table. So in other words, there are lots of reasons not necessarily to believe the results. The other trial that I find really interesting is the flow trial. Now, it's not directly applicable because it's a trial of open fractures, but it's a relatively high quality RCT with 2,500 patients, and they randomized them to either high pressure over 20 PSI, low pressure, which was between 5 and 10 PSI, or very low pressure, which is just 1 to 2 PSI, and there were absolutely no differences. Now, obviously an open fracture is very different from just a laceration, but honestly, I would expect pressure to be a lot more important when you're dealing with something as important as an open fracture than just a simple laceration. So the lack of benefit here makes me think that pressure probably isn't all that important in our patients. And the other source of data uh, is something we're going to come back to in a second. We already mentioned is just, there's really good data saying that tap water is fine for irrigation. And that also suggests to me that pressure doesn't really matter that much. So the quick uh, summary here is there is no clinical evidence at all to guide us on how much irrigation is is necessary and the data on pressure is severely limited only one there is one positive trial but not a great trial and personally i sort of doubt that pressure matters but there's just no way to be sure
2: i love the old dogma that the solution to pollution is dilution and justin are you really going to take that from me this is you know a core <laughs> tenant in every medical school aspiration class and residency you know i i I got that on a t-shirt. I hold that close to my heart. But, you know, this data is is really interesting. So clinically, I really think what we need to consider is the cause of the wound, the risk of embedded contamination, you know, as an itis for infection. And as we mentioned before, I'm not going to waterboard a two-year-old to get that forehead bite from a coffee table. But I will aggressively irrigate that filthy mountain bike gash or if someone decides to put their hand in their compost bin and slice it up on something. So I'm sure all your listeners will still irrigate I think they will still use what they're used to in terms of doing this but it's you know I think the middle ground for all of this is a clean and simple or very mildly contaminated wound is easily and an easily observed location can be managed with some saline cell gauze and you know try to keep your bed sheets dry and you know save maybe save some time in the long run.
1: And trying to measure this seems silly, right? You just use as much water as you need to until the visible contamination is gone. And I don't honestly think if it's microscopic, that's for our immune system. That's not, that's not for us to clean out is almost certainly the case. But
0: Yeah, that sounds perfectly reasonable. So, so far, we're not sure that irrigation has any benefit, that if it does, the volume and pressure probably doesn't really matter. That leaves us with the last question of what type of fluid? So everyone's practice seemed to change about 15 years ago from using saline to using tap water. So if you do irrigate, what is the best fluid to use?
2: There's actually a number of studies looking at tap water for laceration irrigation. There's a 2012 Cochrane review that found seven randomized control trials with more than 1,700 patients comparing tap water to sterile saline for irrigation. There's no statistical difference between the groups, so the point estimate actually favors tap water, and my, my suspicion is probably because of volume. So the relative risk was 0.66 with a 95% confidence interval from 0.4 to 1.04, so that's wide. But it leaves the possibility that tap water is better than saline, and, and no, basically no possibility that tap water is worse, which is beneficial. Uh, The best individual study of tap water came after a Cochrane review. This is Weiss in 2013. It's a single-centered or double-blinded RCT. They included 600 or so patients. They excluded patients with any immunocompromise, any active use of antibiotics, bone or tendon involvement in wounds greater than nine hours old. So they compared saline with tap water in both groups. They actually controlled for the volume so 500 mils and you're graded using a syringe and there's no difference between the groups the rate of infection was 3.5 percent with tap water and 6.4 percent with saline so not statistically significant but again the point estimate is on the side of less infections with tap water so i gotta love a cheap accessible option you're gonna get more volume into that cut with tap water than bottles of saline and sometimes for cuts the patients can do it themselves you just stand them at the sink and walk around to get your stuff set up before they come back
1: I think you hit the key thing there. The effective option is going to be the one that actually gets done. And I think a lot of docs are fudging the record saying, Oh, I irrigated this extensively, but it's pretty easy to leave a patient standing by a sink, rinsing their cut for five or 10, 10 minutes. So that probably explains the efficacy in my mind. Um, Interestingly, I I did a little bit of math, and I'm not very good at this, but plugging it into some calculators, and I think if you add that study, you were just talking about the Weiss study to the studies already done in the Cochrane Review, you'll actually end up with a statistically significant result saying that tap water is better than saline, which is is interesting, but I think you might be right. I think it might just be a matter of volume and the fact that people are actually doing it.
0: All right, so tap water seems at least just as good as sterile saline, maybe even better, and that's good. It'll probably save your hospitals a few bucks. Uh, Justin, what about the antiseptics? So, we haven't talked yet about rubbing alcohol, chlorhexidine, providone iodine. I've heard that alcohol is okay to clean a wound the minute it happens, you know, that it'll hurt a bit. But after that, all alcohol does is kill the cells that try to heal the wound. So, it's actually delaying healing. I just recently had a patient who returned weeks after a laceration. And had been cleaning the wound twice daily with rubbing alcohol and wondered why it wasn't healing. And the wound looked clean as a whistle, but there was zero granulation tissue uh, and it just wasn't healing. Ouch. Yeah. Justin, what do, you, what do you think in terms of chlorhexidine, providone iodine? Are they a waste of money, a waste of time? Should we just use them for severely contaminated wounds? What's your thoughts?
1: So I find this data incredibly hard to summarize. And if I went through every paper like we often do on journal jam, we might be here for another four or five hours. And honestly, at the end, the answer is still going to be, I don't know, no matter what. So I don't think that's going to be very time very well spent. Let's start with your first question. The idea that these chemicals are incredibly damaging to tissues, I think is probably partially dogmatic. It's based on some animal studies, but you know, they saw some ischemia and they saw some cell death at high concentrations of the chemicals we use, but the wounds still all heal just fine, no, no matter what. So I, I think the idea that these are damaging chemicals is probably a little bit overblown, but they have never been studied really in humans to, to show that. So it's hard, hard to know. Um, chlorhexidine specifically there are zero clinical trials. So I cannot tell you clinically speaking, whether it helps or hurts or does anything. It has never been tested in this scenario. I was actually surprised every one of the trials on the povidone iodine stuff is tiny. They're, they're well, they, you know, they're, they're, I shouldn't say tiny because there are some up with a couple hundred patients, but low quality, not great, uh, great studies, but there's a Fairly consistent trend through them with decreased infections with this uh, povidone iodine stuff. Um, not huge n- numbers, but a decrease from 10% down to five, 5% five or something like that. These studies are often from the late 1970s, early 1980s, so the qualities is, is a little bit questionable. If, but I, I think that the point is almost anything that you say on this topic is likely going to be too strong for what the evidence base tells us. So, I honestly, I think we can skip over a huge thing and I'll I'll just try to summarize what I've read uh, without diving into each of these papers. I I think to summarize, the evidence is very poor. The idea that these chemicals are really harmful, I don't think is supported by very strong evidence. There are trials from the seventies and eighties that show a significant decrease in infection rates when you use povidone iodine, but mostly it was done in a powder-based format. And again, the infection rates in those trials are higher than I'm used to seeing. So it's, it's hard to say I honestly don't know what all of this evidence means. I, since my training, have not used these antiseptics routinely. But after using this review, I think in the really high-risk patients, patients with diabetes and in wounds that are really contaminated, I might actually start using more povidone iodine based on pretty weak data because at least it was consistent weak data that there is a decreased infection rate without significant harm seen.
2: You hit the nail on the head, Justin. Not all our cuts or wounds are really created equal. And I think we see these heterogeneous populations with simple to complex wounds that neither this or the surgical data could really encompass. And I've only really used iodine a few times before. I found my surgical colleagues really prefer to just, you know, soak or bathe the patient in iodine. And I think that I'm going to continue to clean my wounds with tap water uh, and leave the iodine for the OR. But you're right, maybe there is a role in those extremely contaminated wounds or a patient and really have a high suspicion could develop an infection just due to their underlying substrate in terms of their immunosuppression or immunocompromised.
0: Yeah, You mentioned soaking in iodine. That actually brings up, I remember being taught that soaking a patient's wound in anything actually increases the rate of infection. Do you guys look into that at all? There is one study. Actually, most of these studies
1: do soak. Uh, I think that is based off of one study that showed significant increases in uh, bacterial counts only with normal saline. If you soaked it in water or if you soaked it in povidone, iodine, in, uh, bacterial counts still went down. Um, but it was one. And most of these studies, even though we say irrigation, they really are doing what we normally do, which is uh, gauze onto the wound and technically uh, soaking physiologically speaking, it makes the most sense. If you can, if it's not at the bottom of somebody's foot, stick it under a tap and uh, and irrigate uh, makes the most, most sense. Uh, it doesn't make sense to leave somebody's wound sitting in a, in a Petri dish. But if that's the best you can do, I, I think, again, it's the best you can do.
0: Okay. So when we're talking about irrigating a wound, it really is moving liquid rather than having it just sit and soak in it for a while because that may increase the risk of infection. All right, I think it's fair to say that when it comes to irrigating wounds, we have rather poor evidence of benefit, but that common sense would dictate that for patients who have an obviously dirty laceration or patients who are immunocompromised or who already have some evidence of infection, that irrigating the wound is reasonable. Probably running tap water is as good as any other fluid for most wounds. You may want to reach for the Providone iodine for horribly contaminated wounds and that volume and pressure probably don't matter. We've kind of hashed out irrigation to death. The next question is what kind of gloves we should be wearing when we repair a laceration. So there's sterile gloves, which on a quick online search costs about a buck 50 each compared to the blue non-sterile disposable gloves that cost about five cents each in Canada. Justin, doesn't matter what kind of glove we use.
1: Yeah, I think most people have heard about this research before. Uh, I may have written too much about it. The fact that sterile gloves are no better than just that normal box full of gloves on the wall. Actually, when I started this review in spring 2022, I was actually pretty surprised how weak the evidence was considering how strongly this was taught to me. Really, at that, at that point, there was really only one RCT super neat because it was done by some of our colleagues and friends here in Toronto, but still it was only really one RCT. So I'm not sure it should have led to the same amount of certainty that I was taught this practice with, but luckily actually this summer we got a second RCT. So unlike most of the topics that we're talking about today, I think there's actually pretty good data and we can Conclude with some pretty uh, relative certainty here, uh, but actually, before we get into those RCTs, I, I just, out of interest sake, I wanted to talk about a couple historical papers for context because there are actually three RCTs in which sterile gloves were compared to no gloves at all. Uh, that's right. In the 1980s, they were repairing lacerations with bare hands, and in all three studies, there was no difference at all. Sterile gloves were no better than bare hands and in fact in one study the infection rate was higher in the sterile glove group now these studies are fun to read, but they're not exactly the greatest science you'll ever see. First of all, bare hands aren't exactly what you're picturing. They did like full prer- uh, sterile prep. It's like picture going in to do that OR scrub and then they just didn't put on gloves at the end. And then second, obviously this research is from a bygone er- era, right? For example, one of the studies was just done by a single family doctor in his own office and he was like randomized by pulling colored beads out of his own own bag. I think it's fairly clear that we are not repairing wounds without gloves these days. That's, that's just gross. But I thought it was neat background that, uh, you know, if sterile gloves aren't better than bare hands, it's pretty unlikely that they're going to be better than clean gloves. One other piece of background information that I thought was interesting, you know, that big box of gloves, even though they're not labeled sterile, are actually mostly sterile, right? That the, the factories are, are not trying to contaminate them before they send them to you. And uh, There was actually an ICU-based study where they tried to culture the gloves in that big box, and if they did it immediately after the box was opened, and then they also did it in, at further times after the box had been used, and then they took the very last pair of gloves in that box and, and cultured that as well, and more than half the time, the gloves were completely sterile. There were no bacteria on them at all. And even when bacteria did grow, despite the fact that these were in ICU, rooms over the course of like normal uh, patient treatment the strains that grew on these gloves were not pathogens and they only grew in very small quantities so that's some interesting ba- background that should tell you that you know it's very unlikely that we're going to see a benefit from sterile gloves when clean gloves are probably sterile almost all the time anyway
0: that's pretty cool about the bare hands i wish we could go back to that era i feel pretty <laughs> <Do deep. you? laughs> yeah. oh, no. i'm shivering oh, I just thinking about that pretty hand. hard <laughs> Hardcore badass just doing everything in the eMERGE barehanded. Um, <laughs> Gross. Anyways, yeah, that, that would not fly today. Um, now, I understand there are two RCTs that compared sterile gloves to the so-called non-sterile clean gloves that are on the wall. Uh, Haley, can you tell us about those RCTs?
2: Yeah, you bet, Anton. I just keep thinking about bare hands. So the, the first is Proma in 2004. It's a multi-center RCT out of Toronto that enrolled 816 patients with uncomplicated lacerations and randomized them to have clean wear, sterile gloves, or clean gloves. They excluded high-risk patients such as anybody with immunosuppression, classic for this research cohort, and follow-up was done by a questionnaire bot uh, to the family doctor when the sutures were removed. So somewhat predictably, they only received about half of these questionnaires, but they were able to reach almost everybody by phone. And there was no difference in infection rates, 6.1% with sterile gloves and 4.4% with clean gloves. Um, There's actually another RCT that was published just this year. Uh, this is WANs two, 2022. It's another multi-center RCT that randomized sterile and clean gloves. And they included complex wounds and bites, but not immunosuppression, thankfully. The trial was bigger on the bigger end, 1,400 uh, or so patients. And again, there's no difference in infection rates of 6.8% with sterile gloves and 5.7% with clear gloves. So personally, I I am always reaching for the -the off-the-wall clean gloves. And, you know, even though I think bare hands will be my preference now, I guess uh, people have been (laughs) bare-handing wounds probably longer than we've been a specialty, Uh, The one thing that can be beneficial is for those sterile gloves to actually fit and for the tactile response. So with the small, medium, and large fit range, sometimes I actually fall between sizes. And I find that when I'm wearing, you know, those nitrile gloves, you know, my hands can slip on the tools and having sterile gloves where I can actually fit my hand by size, I think I get a little bit more tactile response. So if I'm doing something that's more complicated or I, you know, I need longer gloves that are kind of covering things depending on what I'm working in, I think sometimes sterile gloves are actually beneficial in that way. Now, the other thing when we're kind of talking about some of these infections rates or, you know, you're digging around in the bottom of that glove box, you can always sterilize the gloves or partially sterilize them by either washing your hands, using chlorhexidine, or maybe even just taking some sterile saline or some alcohol preps and just cleaning the gloves on the outside. So you're not overly sterilizing them, but you can clean them if you think that you want that net benefit of having sort of cleaner, cleaner gloves before moving on to cleaning that wound out and fixing it.
1: It's such a great pearl. And the other pearl is just, you know, if it's the box that's been there for three weeks and has been kicked around on the floor, you know, it's okay to open up a brand new box of clean gloves if, if that's your choice for this patient. Yeah, everybody drops um, them on
2: the floor and then stuffs them back in. So guarantee, guaranteed there's some MRSA at some point in at least a couple pairs of those gloves.
1: So I think we should be strictly EBM and give like that journal jam uh, summary of this evidence, because uh, even though we're going to get excited, this is the best evidence of I think any topic we're going to talk about today. These are strong RCTs. It, it's still there is still not perfect. The Perlman study actually did some math and they tell us that you would need more than 3,000 patients in each group in order to really demonstrate equivalence. And obviously we're nowhere close to, to that. So there's still a possibility that we're missing something here, but I am reassured by the fact that in both trials, the infection rate was actually higher in the sterile group, uh, sterile glove group for some, some reasons. But again, we should just be clear. These are underpowered for a potential difference in the real world. Again, I think you're exactly right. Uh, Judgment is the key here. You know, if I was really worried about a patient, if they had significant immunosuppression, I might still consider sterile gloves, or at least, as I said, open a brand new box of gloves. But I can't remember the last time I did that. For the average patients, I just grab a a pair of gloves from from the box off, off the wall,
0: and I think that is good enough. So let's move on now to the laceration repair itself and talk about averting the edges of the wound the tension across the lack and spacing of sutures. So when it comes to dogma, I think we were all taught that you must avert the edges of the wound to ensure good healing. And that's fine. But sometimes I find I'm really struggling to get those skin edges tenting upward and averted. Sometimes I'll need to switch to a mattress suture and that helps to avert the edges better. That takes a little bit longer. It can be satisfying though, getting that mattress suture in. The question is, can I forget about averting the edges to avoid all these these struggles that I'm having, or do I need to keep struggling and really aim to avert those skin edges?
2: So just to kind of clarify what we're meaning by that eversion of wound edges. So the idea is to try to pull those top epidermal edges so they curl upwards. So it's done because the, the theory behind it is that as the wounds contract, they're basically healing from the bottom of the wound upwards. And as they're doing that, they're pulling the wound edges in and they're also pulling them down. So if the wounds are folded in or the that very top of the epidermis or the surface of the skin is either sitting against itself or, or worse, Curled in, then you're going to get this sort of puckering or sort of rolled edge to your wound when you really want it to kind of sit flat. So, just one of the things to kind of mention and to think visually while you're listening to this is when we're looking at wounds, and the reason why scarring is so noticeable is actually because of that indentation uh, in the skin itself. So, if you're ever looking at the mountains, this is a great example, and you're sort of looking at the edge of the mountains, your eye is not actually picking up the light. On the crest of the mountains, your eye is actually drawn into the depths or the darker surfaces. We're naturally prone to kind of picking up that sort of deep or crevasse crack within where light is hitting rather than the surface. So your eye is going to be drawn more to seeing that indentation in the moon more than it is to see the rolled edge. So we want to make sure that wounds are sitting as flat as possible.
1: Yeah, and there's certainly a very reasonable theory for this whole eversion idea. You know, considering how prevalent and how strongly this dogma was taught to me in medical school, I was actually surprised by the utter lack of evidence. As far as I can tell, there is only a single trial in the history of medicine to determine whether wound edge eversion actually improves outcomes. And that trial was actually published well after I graduated from medical school. So I have no idea where the idea or whether, where this teaching started from. So the only trial we have, as far as I can tell, is CAPL 2015. It's a single center RCT. It has, it is of 50 patients in a dermatology clinic who had undergone a simple excision for their skin. And they divided every one of the wounds in half and they closed half of the wounds with a suture that was specifically designed to produce eversion and the other half of the wounds was closed with the goal of a planar closure, just flat so that the edges line up perfectly flat. And they've just used simple interrupted sutures to do that. And then they looked and at three to six months, there was absolutely no difference. So the only trial in the history of medicine says that eversion does nothing. You know, I will admit this is 50 people. It's a small, single center trial with incomplete blinding and incomplete follow-up. So it's not like this proves that eversion doesn't help. You know, this is actually somewhat problematic for us uh, as we go through the rest of the episode, because there are a lot of trials that actually comment on or conclude that one type of suture or one closure technique is better than another just because they produce better eversion but if eversion doesn't help every single one of those trials is invalid you know that, that that's very problematic now again there's only one specific trial but i do think we have lots and lots and lots of other evidence that eversion doesn't help and we're going to get into that next because there is a ton of evidence looking at different laceration closure techniques things like skin glues and closure strips like SteriStrips. strips and those things do not evert wound edges and the outcomes in all those trials, a little bit of, uh, of a spoiler alert here, they work just as well as sutures. So if skin glue and steri strips work just as well as sutures and they do not evert wound edges, I think that's a lot of indirect evidence to go with this one single RCT that eversion probably doesn't matter.
2: That sounds like a secret dermatology agenda to me, Justin. I think they, uh, they've they got the luck on the woundy version. But I think what's really important about wound closure is that, and the reason why we're actually putting sutures in is we're trying to bring the wounds in opposition so that they are as less... Uh, space for healing, and also we're trying to lessen the tension on the wound edges that are healing. We know that secondary intention healing, those wounds are wider. They're obviously more noticeable. And I have a few examples of secondary intention wounds from a childhood of running with scissors. So when putting sutures in the wounds that have high tension, we're more likely to get unsightly train tracking, or for the sutures to fail and that wound to gape and that secondary intention healing to occur. So that can also occur, you know, as the sutures are moved prematurely for whatever reason. So there's various techniques that you all know, such as those mattress sutures that bring the wound together by using tissue further out from the wound to pull out that, that margin together at the end. And, and one thing I'd love your listeners to consider after this awesome episode is to consider putting in more deep sutures to lessen the tensions on wounds, so you can give that cut real chance of healing in a linear fashion rather than thinking hard and fast about making sure that they're everted. And maybe in Ignore that dermatology agenda for the time being.
1: I think this is a really important EBM lesson that you're getting to there. Like this is so complex. Sure, there's no evidence that eversion matters across the board, but like most Wounds are going to heal just fine. And these are perfectly clean cuts in a dermatology clinic. So maybe eversion really matters in some complex wounds somewhere, but like a lot of topics, it's just unproven. And and so I, I think we can ignore it until somebody goes out and finds those wounds and tells us when we should be aiming to evert. I think that's the key.
0: All right. So it seems to me that there's really no convincing evidence that aversion of skin edges really matters. So thank you. I can avoid my struggles that I've been having sometimes averting those skin edges. Um, And rather than dwelling on averting the skin edges, we should consider maybe how we can minimize the tension across the wound by, by using some deep sutures or mattress sutures. You know, when we're faced with one of those laceration that looks like it's about to burst, if we just put superficial, simple sutures in. So those are some great tips. I think what we're going to do is divide this journal gem into three parts. Uh, so in part two, we're going to cover sutures versus staples versus glue versus wound closure strips, which one of those we should be using for which kind of lacerations, and a bunch of other great tips on wound closure. And then in part three, we'll talk about maybe even the most important part, which is aftercare. So thank you very much, Dr. Cochrane and Dr. Morgan Stern. We will catch you in part two.
2: Sounds good.
1: Looking forward to
0: it. All right, let's review. But before we do, in concert with the release of this podcast, we have just released our first EM cases, Journal Club. So this is not Journal Jam podcast. This is Journal Club, which is a quick, concise, critical appraisal of EM articles and often ones that no one else is talking about will be written by Rohit Mohindra. You can get EM Cases Journal Club in two forms. There's the email blast you get by signing up for the Journal Club along with Q&A Pro of the Week by hitting the subscription button on the EM Cases website. We'll also have it in the form of a blog on the EM Cases website where you get a bonus peer review by Shelley McLeod. And in other news, tickets are selling like hotcakes for the Virtual EM Cases Summit. The morning symposiums and sim sessions are nearly sold out, so go get your tickets soon. We've got deep discounts for medical students, only 95 bucks for all three days, including the digital package, in case you miss any of it. Please support our ongoing FOMED efforts of the podcast, blogs, videos, quiz vault, and email blasts by registering for the summit. Go to emcasesummit.com for more information. All right, here's the review of this Journal Jam podcast. First, timing of laceration closure. Close lacerations sooner rather than later because you'll likely get a better cosmetic outcome. But when it comes to infection risk and time from injury to closure, we don't really know if the time of closure makes any difference. The most important aspect of management of the patient who presents late with a laceration is counseling the patient about cosmesis and taking into account their personal preference. You're going to give everyone the same discharge instructions with regards to looking out for signs of infection regardless of when the laceration is closed. If they present 12 hours, 24 hours after they've sustained a laceration, it's still prudent to close them. Next, we talked about irrigation, and unfortunately, there is no clear evidence for irrigation of lacerations, and there might even be some harm. For obviously dirty wounds and immunocompromised patients, irrigation makes more sense. If you're going to irrigate, do it with tap water or with providone iodine solution, and there's pretty good evidence that soaking in normal saline increases bacterial counts, so soaking wounds generally isn't a great idea. When it comes to the volume and pressure of irrigation, the evidence suggests that it doesn't matter how much fluid you use or what pressure you use it at. Sterile gloves don't seem to decrease infection rates, so those ones that we grab out of a box on the wall are good enough. You might want to consider sterile gloves in the immunocompromised patient, and if, for whatever reason, you need better tactile sensation, that well-fitting sterile gloves will give you over the boxed gloves. Finally, it doesn't seem to matter that aversion of wound edges matters, but again, there's only one small RCT on this, so we don't really know. And rather than concentrating on aversion of the wound edges, what's probably more important is minimizing tension across the wound by using deep sutures or mattress sutures. So until next time, take it easy.